Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda a voice in the desert now here's crystal heath and hello las vegas everyone listening elsewhere those of you listening over at the 405media.com thanks for being here today great to have you with us if you are in las vegas then you want to join us for church tonight 7 p.m at 6501 west lake mead boulevard i slept so good last night but now i have the most horrific crick in my neck shoulder area anyway you didn't really need to know that but you would be surprised how inhibited you are you when i'm talking on radio i guess i'm a little animated sometimes i didn't realize how anim- how much i actually move around behind the microphone until i was getting ready this morning i was like ah 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 anyhow <laughs> Let's move on from my from my cricked neck. What shall we talk about today? Let's talk about the Keystone Pipeline, which is coming. It's going to bring hundreds, if not thousands, of jobs, as well as it should lower fuel costs here in the continental U.S. The president signed another five executive orders yesterday. This is from USA Today. President Trump signed five more executive actions Tuesday in a blitz of executive power meant to speed approvals of high-profile energy and infrastructure projects, including two controversial pipeline projects in the upper Midwest. Trump signed two presidential memoranda intended to expedite the Keystone Pipeline and Dakota Access Pipelines, but also signed three more longer-term and sweeping directives requiring American-made steel and changing the process of approving Uh, excuse me, approving and regulating future pipeline and infrastructure projects. This is about streamlining the incredibly cumbersome, long, horrible permitting process, Trump said in an Oval Office signing ceremony that has already become a trademark of his short presidency. I love how they say things like this. Once again, did you miss all of President Obama's... uh, executive orders. And I'll I'll get into this in a second. In reversing the Obama administration policy to disapprove the Keystone Pipeline, Trump emphasized that the construction isn't a done deal. It's something that's subject to a renegotiation of terms by us. We'll see if we can get the pipeline built. A lot of jobs will come of it. 28,000 jobs. The Keystone Pipeline became a lightning rod for Obama's energy policy, with the administration taking seven years to make a decision before ultimately killing it over environmental concerns. Environmental groups reacted quickly, uh, promising legal action and White House protests. President Trump will live to regret his actions this morning, said Michael Brune of the Sierra Club, promising a wall of resistance. Uh, clever. The likes of which he never imagined. The directives Trump signed Tuesday included four presidential memoranda and one executive order. It was the memoranda expand or expediting rather the Keystone Pipeline, a memorandum directing the Secretary 
of the Army to review and review and approve in an expedited manner the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, a memorandum requiring the Secretary of Commerce to come up with a plan to mandate American-made steel for all new expanded or retrofitted pipelines in the United States. The plan is due in six months and is intended to put steel workers back to work. A memorandum to all federal agencies to review manufacturing regulations. The Secretary of Commerce is required to seek input from the public on how to streamline those rules for 60 days with a report uh, to Trump containing proposals 60 days after that. And an executive order fast-tracking approval for high-priority infrastructure projects. Under Trump's order, any governor or cabinet secretary can ask for a project to be designated as high-priority. If the chairman of the White House Council on Environmental Quality approves, the project will go to the front of the line for any agency required to review and approve the project. This is the expediting of environmental reviews and approvals for high-priority infrastructure projects. Trump said, we can't be in an environmental process for 15 years if a bridge is falling down. Okay, so I discussed this in detail yesterday. We talked about the hypocrisy of the media earlier this week and the hypocrisy that some of us all tend to kind of have. You know, when it's not our guy in office, we hate everything that he does. And when it is our guy in office, we love everything he does, even if the things they're doing are exactly the same thing. And I talked about how executive orders are one of those things that we tend to hate if it's not our guy doing it. And we tend to love if it is our guy doing it. And we never actually really look at what the executive orders are. We just know we hate them if it's not our guy and we love them if it is our guy. Well, we got to get past that. And if you hated Obama's executive orders, then you should hate Trump's. Or maybe you didn't actually know what was in most of Obama's executive orders, or maybe you did. I don't know. Point being this. I'm not a fan of executive orders unless, as I've said the past two days, they undo a past executive order or something that a previous administration was doing uh, that was contrary to Congress or the will of the American people. Or things like these executive orders I honestly have zero problems with because none of them are some sweeping mandate of thus and thus shall it be written and thus and thus shall it be done. Thus saith the president and thus you, my subjects, shall henceforward obey. Obey was the word I was going for there. No, these are these are executive orders saying, one, okay, Obama administration blocked the Keystone Pipeline. Let's unblock it. Doesn't mean it's going to happen, but we're going to give it the possibility to happen now. Uh, other one says, hey, you know what? Let's use American steel in America building. That would be huge for the for the Northeast, especially in Pittsburgh area. Steel workers back to work. That's a huge industry that, that can be American that I believe should be. So, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Now, if it's going to put a damper on construction, and that's something they have to look at. You know, is it best to get American steel? Is it best to get elsewhere? Is it best to do both? I don't know, but it gives an opportunity for a plan. All, all these executive orders, all they said was... Bring me a plan about how we could do this better. That is very different than many of the executive orders that we saw under the previous administration that were, I don't like what Congress is not letting me do, so I'm just going to bypass them and do what I want. And you people shall listen, because I am Presidente. That's not what these are. These are, <laughs> these are literally memos that say, bring me a plan to make this better. And the media is reporting it as Trump is sweeping the nation with executive orders. Look at what he doeth. No, he's saying bring me plans on how we can make these things better. I think that's a good thing. I think if there are ways that we can improve what we're doing, and believe me, there are, we should do them. So let's give them a chance. Let's see what these people come up with. Let's see if anybody gets some good plans together and, you know, might not kill us to give them a chance. Just saying. 
Also, still looking for what it is that I've lost by way of my women's rights. I've, I will probably be on this quest all week. You know, the, the women's march, because women apparently lost all kinds of human and female rights when Donald Trump became president. I'm still trying to figure out what rights I've lost. So once again, if, if you know what they are, if you could let me know on Facebook or Twitter at The Friddle, I would appreciate it. Because I don't want to be missing out on some rights that I didn't know that I lost or had or something. But uh, the other thing that I love about these quote-unquote executive orders, which are really memos saying bring me plans on how to make America better, um, is the potential for jobs. Trump promised jobs, that he would work to bring back jobs, and honestly, if he gets good plans like this and they go through, he will deliver on, on that promise if they can get some plans together that bring up jobs. And credit to President Trump or not, uh, Pizza Hut is going to be hiring 11,000, 11,000, no, that, if you put those together, what my mouth was trying to say and my brain, sometimes there's a disconnect there. Don't laugh and don't say it's more often than I think. Uh, Pizza Hut is going to be hiring 11,000 employees leading up to the Super Bowl. So if you are looking for a job, if you are out of work, Pizza Hut might be a good place to try. This is from CNN Money in the U.S. Pizza Hut is hiring 11,000 workers in the United States and just in time for Super Bowl Sunday, the biggest pizza day of the year. The company is looking for pizza makers, delivery drivers, managers, and servers, among other jobs. The positions are permanent, said Doug Turfer, a spokesman for Yum Brands, the parent company of Pizza Hut. So, basically what the uh, what the company is saying is it's not like we're hiring people so that we can make all of our Super Bowl Sunday pizzas. It's not a seasonal, a Super Bowl seasonal position, if you will. These are permanent jobs we're bringing in. We need more people. Uh, Turfer said, the need begins to mount as we head into our busiest day of the year, but it's still there following February 5th, he said. Pizza Hut currently employs 300,000 workers wor- workers worldwide, including 120,000 in the United States, and has 15,600 restaurants in 97 countries with plans to expand. In addition to Pizza Hut, the parent company owns KFC and Taco Bell. Essentially, Yum! Brands is just the best brands of fast food uh, that that there are. So... Or that there is best yeah best parent company is yes best parent company that there is so if you needed to invest in a food parent company you know i know nothing about them or how their stocks do but just based on their food and my perception of their food it might not be a it might not be a bad idea might not be a bad idea but even more exciting than pizza and to me, perhaps the most exciting thing thus far post-Trump election is our already vastly improved relationship with Israel. You can see it. Like, you can literally see it happening. So, here's the question. Why do we care about Israel? Why should we care about Israel? Simple. No one else is going to if we don't. That's it. Bottom line. Narrow down. We're the only ones who will care. Now, you could argue that there are other peace-loving countries around the world and a handful of democracies that would rise to Israel's aid if we were not on the scene, and I, I think you'd be correct to a point. But I also believe that if you take the United States out of the picture, these other countries then become less inclined to actually help Israel. Not to mention that the United States give Israel over $3 billion per year right now. No one else even begins to compare with that number. 
Now, why would we do that, you ask? Let me have someone else much wiser explain to you. This is the Washington Institute. They are uh, uh, an institute dedicated to improving the quality of U.S. Middle East policy. And they wrote a piece. It's a couple years old, but it's still very relevant. It's called Friends with Benefits, Why the U.S.-Israeli Alliance is Good for America. And then it, go, it talks about why it's politically expedient. But then it goes back, uh, it talks about why what we're actually gaining why this is good for us, not just good for Israel. U.S.-Israeli security cooperation dates back to heights of the Cold War when the Jewish state came to be seen in Washington as a bulwark against Soviet influence in the Middle East and a counter to Arab nationalism. Although the world has changed since then, the strategic logic for the U.S.-Israeli alliance has not. Israel remains a counterweight against radical forces in the Middle East, including political Islam and violent extremism. It has also prevented the further proliferation of weapons of mass destruction in the region by thwarting Iraq and Syria's nuclear programs. Israel continues to help the United States deal with traditional security threats as well. The two countries share intelligence on terrorism, nuclear proliferation, and Middle Eastern politics. Israel's military experiences have shaped the United States' approach to counterterrorism and homeland security. The two governments work together to develop sophisticated military technology, such as the David Sling counter-rocket and aero-missile defense systems, which may soon be ready for export to other U.S. allies. Israel has also emerged as an important niche defense supplier to the U.S. military, with sales growing from $300 million per year before September 11th to $1.1 billion in 2006 due to the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. Israel's military research and development complex has pioneered many cutting-edge technologies that are transforming the face of modern war, including cyber weapons, unmanned vehicles such as land robots and aerial drones, sensors and electronic warfare system, and advanced defenses for military vehicles. The U.S.-Israeli alliance has also paved the way for countries to cooperate on far more than just traditional security issues, in part because of the long-standing political and security relationships between the United States and Israel. Most Israelis know the United States and harbor positive feelings toward it. Israeli companies looking for a global market for their products have often viewed their American counterparts as partners of choice. So today, Israeli civilian technological innovations are helping the United States maintain its economic competitiveness, promote sustainable development, and address a range of non-military security challenges. Dozens of leading U.S. companies have set up technology incubators in Israel to take advantage of the country's uh, penchant for new ideas, which is why Bill Gates observed in 2006 that the innovation going on in Israel is critical to the future of the technology business. Likewise, Israeli high-tech firms often turn to U.S. companies as partners for joint production and marketing opportunities in the United States and elsewhere, creating tens of thousands of American jobs. And although Israelis make up just 3% of the population of the Middle least. In 2011, Israel was the destination of 25% of all U.S. exports to the region, having recently eclipsed Saudi Arabia as the top market for American products. U.S. companies' substantial cooperation with Israel on information technology has been crucial to Silicon Valley's success. At Intel's research and development centers in Israel, engineers have designed many of the company's most successful microprocessors, accounting for some 40% of the firm's revenues last year. If you made a secure financial transaction on the internet, sent an instant message, or bought something using PayPal, you can thank Israeli IT researchers.
Israeli innovators have also come up with novel solutions to the water and food security challenges posed by population growth, climate change, and economic development. By necessity, given the geography of the Middle East, Israel is a world leader in water conservation and management and high-tech agriculture. Israel recycles more than 80% of its wastewater, the highest level in the world, and has pioneered widely used techniques of conserving or purifying water, including drip irrigation and reverse osmosis desalination. And a number of Israeli companies are leaders in the development of renewable energy sources. Bright Source Industries, for example, is building a solar plant in California using Israeli technology that will double the amount of solar thermal electricity produced in America. These innovations, bolstered by the substantial American investment in Israel, contribute to long-term U.S. domestic and foreign policy objectives relating to sustainable development. And it goes on. It's a it's a very lengthy article, and it talks all about why the U.S.-Israeli uh, relationship is about more than just uh, military and security and counterterrorism efforts, although that is a huge part of why the, the alliance is good for our country and good for Israel. But it's so far beyond that. And I think sometimes uh, we in Christendom tend to look at Israel and say, we are friends with Israel because God says we need to be friends with Israel, and that's it, period, end of story. And that's true. God says that we should uh, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. God says that we should be friends with Israel, that we should take Israel's side. God does say that, and so we should do it, period, end of story. But sometimes if we leave it there, then people outside of Christendom look at us and say, well, that's silly. How does this practically benefit us? And so I think it's good that we be educated on how, practically speaking, an alliance with Israel benefits our everyday lives. I mean, did you catch some of that? If you've ever completed a secure financial transaction on the internet, you can thank Israelis for that. If you've ever sent an instant message, Israelis created that too. If you bought something from PayPal... Thank Israeli IT researchers. I mean, we have relationships with Israel that I think most Americans don't even know about. Far beyond what we see on TV and just them being a bastion of of freedom in the Middle East, which, by the way, they are the only free country in the Middle East. But it goes so far past that. And I, I don't have time to get into it more in depth today, but you can go, this this piece is at the WashingtonInstitute.org. It's a policy analysis on uh, the U.S.-Israeli alliance, and it's an excellent piece. And there are others like this. You can go and look them up. It doesn't have to be from uh, from that institute. But uh, there, there's just, there are so many reasons why it is good for us to be friends with Israel. And that's why I'm so excited. That what I This is what I think is the best thing so far that we have from the Trump administration, is an improved relationship with Israel already. There's also a report that the Trump administration is making plans to move the U.S. Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem for years, if not decades. Israel has been saying, Jerusalem is our capital. And the rest of the world says, no, it's Tel Aviv. And and Israel says, no, it's Jerusalem. And the rest of the world says, no, it's Tel Aviv. Well, maybe they should get to pick, since it's, you know, their country. So the White House on Monday, this is from the independent.co.uk, announced that the U.S. Embassy in Israel is to move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, according to an unconfirmed report. Uh, no, it's, no, no, no. Uh, it's in the early stages. Sorry. 
The White House has confirmed it is in the early stages of talks regarding the embassy's move. A member of the Trump administration has said that they will announce the highly controversial move uh, sometime within the president's first few months in office. The news, ha- the Independent, has received no confirmation of the claim, and there's been no public statement on the move since Friday's inauguration of the U.S. president. But relocating the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem would represent a major break with U.S. policy. Donald Trump has said repeatedly that he intends to relocate the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, despite warnings the move would violate international law and destroy the peace process. One false, two false. Earlier in January, U.S. officials and Israeli foreign ministry sources said the incoming U.S. ambassador to Israel could be based in Jerusalem, while the official embassy building remains in Tel Aviv. Relocating the embassy to Jerusalem would be seen as a provocative move by Mr. Trump's critic, as the city is claimed by both Israelis and Palestinians as their capital. Except, I don't know if you've heard this, but there is no actual country called Palestine It does not exist on the face of the planet. So therefore, how can you have a capital in a country that does not exist? Just a thought. Israel annexed East Jerusalem in the 1967 Six-Day War. The move, however, has not been recognized by the international community. Hmm. Mr. Trump also appointed a new U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who is considered a supporter of settlements. Now, put that together with the fact that over at Yahoo, you know, we have a U.S. ambassador that approves uh, settlements. And then what happens? Israel has now approved 2,500 West Bank settlement homes. It's from Yahoo News. Uh, Israel has approved the construction of 2,500 settler homes in the occupied West Bank, officials said Tuesday, making good on promises to expand such building following the election of U.S. President Donald Trump. The plans, approved by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman, mark the largest recent announcement of settlement building by Israel. The defense ministry announced the plans in a statement, saying most of the homes would be located within large settlement blocks in the West Bank. Around 100 are to be located in the settlement of Beit El near Ramallah, it said. A Palestinian industrial zone near the West Bank city of Hebron was also approved. Netanyahu spoke of the settlement approvals on Twitter. We are building and we will continue building, he said. Trump has signaled strong support for Israel and Israeli right-wing politicians have sought to take advantage, with hardliners calling for an end to the idea of a Palestinian state. Netanyahu has said he still supports a two-state solution, but reportedly told ministers Sunday that all restrictions on building settlement in annexed East Jerusalem were being lifted. He also said Sunday he plans to expand construction in large settlement blocks in the West Bank, Israeli media reported, and that he foresees eventually bringing all settlements under Israeli sovereignty. And there is zero reason why they shouldn't be able to do that, because it is Israel's land. See, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is very easy to explain. One side wants the other side dead and gone. That's really the bottom line. Israel, for decades, has made concession after concession after concession, and it is never enough. The Palestinians have made exactly zero concessions since Israel became a state. And the Palestinians say, well, we have no home. Well, if you look at the Middle East, everywhere is your home. Islam is embraced everywhere. Palestinians are everywhere. Israel, even in Israel, you are free to exercise whatever religion you please. You are just not free to blow people up and kill people simply because they happen to be Jewish. 
That's against the rules. Palestinians don't like that. The Palestinians don't want the Jewish people to have anywhere to live. Where are the Jewish people supposed to live? I'm not... Dennis Prager, if you want an excellent summary of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, just Google Prager University, Israel, Palestine. It's like five minutes long, and it is the best video you could ever watch. It will explain the conflict in detail and yet so simply that your third graders can get it, and I'd encourage you to watch it with your children because it, it will give you a new outlook on that whole uh, situation. So, anyway, uh, and uh, I believe President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu are going to be meeting sometime, I think it's early February. They were had a phone call, which Trump said was very nice, uh, earlier this week, and he invited Netanyahu to the White House, and I believe that is scheduled to take place, as I mentioned, in a couple of weeks. All right. When we get back from this break, we will talk about the other exciting news coming out of the Trump administration, and that is the potential announcement of Mr. Trump's first Supreme Court pick. Dun, 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 But first, it's Christian Stanfield with Even So Come, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. All right, we are back. You're listening to The Frittle Show on 101.1 FM Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas. As promised, we are going to talk about Donald Trump's potential first Supreme Court pick. All right, so, uh, oh, where'd it go? Had an article pulled up on my phone and it has left me. Hang on one second here. So the White House is saying that as early as next week, Donald Trump could name his first Supreme Court nomination. Who will it be? This is the question that we seek to answer. So, shall we answer it? Let's answer it. I have two pieces on this that uh, are my favorite Excuse me, I'm very congested this morning. I'm not sure why. So, first off is from the LA Times. I actually appreciate this article because it looks like uh, a Colorado judge has emerged as a top contender to Phil Scalia's Supreme Court seat. It's Judge Neil M. Garouche. I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name. Uh, But he's highly regarded conservative jurist best known for upholding religious liberty rights in the legal battles over Obamacare. And uh, he's 49. He was among 21 potential high court candidates circulated by Trump's team during the campaign. And his stock has been rising lately as several admirers and supporters have been named positions in the Trump administration. So admirable. The uh, the Trump team looks that they will be picking from the list that they actually put out. So instead of going outside the list, it looks like they are trying to put someone in from the list. He currently serves on the U.S. 10th Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. A former clerk for Justice Byron White, also a Colorado native, and Justice Anthony Kennedy. He served in the George W. Bush administration's Justice Department. In Garouche, supporters see a jurist who has strong academic credentials, a gift for clear writing, and a devotion to deciding cases based on the original meaning of the Constitution and the text of statutes, as did the late Justice Antonin Scalia. Just as importantly, Garouche is seen as someone who might more easily be confirmed in the Senate. Unlike other appointees of President George W. Bush, Garouche won an easy Senate confirmation on a voice vote in 2006. He's very bright, well-respected, and quite personable, said John Malcolm, a lawyer at the Heritage Foundation. And there's no question he would not be as contentious as some others. 
Until recently, the two top contenders for the first Supreme Court nomination by Trump were believed to be Judge William H. Pryor of Alabama, who serves on the U.S. 11th Circuit Court in Atlanta. That would be my first choice, probably, of the list. Um, Also, Don Willett of Texas would be high on my list. Uh, And Judge Diane Sykes of Wisconsin, who serves on the U.S. 7th Court, Circuit Court in Chicago. Trump mentioned them in a Republican debate specifically after Scalia passed away. Pryor appeared to have an edge because he is a protege of Senator Jeff Sessions, Trump's choice for U.S. Attorney General. Pryor has been an outspoken critic of abortion rights and gay rights, which won him admirers on the right, but also made him a target for liberals and Democrats. He once described the Roe v. Wade situation as the worst abomination in the history of constitutional law. So, uh, then it goes on to talk about why they believe that that would keep Pryor from being Selected and why Garouche uh, looks to have a good uh, a good shot at this potentially, but uh, Garouche has some not as conservative leanings. This is over at Washington Times. Conservative groups are trying to derail two potential Supreme Court picks. One group is running ads against 11th U.S. Circuit Court Judge William Pryor for showing hostility toward religious liberty in a 2011 case, and another is warning Mr. Trump not to pick 10th U.S. Circuit Court Judge Neil Garouche, saying he has not shown enough devotion to pro-life causes. The next uh, justice will tip the ideological balance on the now deadlocked Supreme Court and replace Antonin Scalia, a conservative stalwart whose seat has been empty since his death nearly a year ago. Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, where is it? There's. For Garouche. Uh, Anthony Shafley, a lawyer at the Legal Center for Defense of Life and son of the late conservative activist Phyllis Shafley, whose program we play, Eagle Forum Report, we play that here on KVXL, uh, Phyllis Schlafly's son, Andrew Schlafly, said that Judge Garouche uses pro-choice terminology in his writings and may not be willing to overturn the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision that established a national constitutional right to abortion. Garouche is not pro-life, Mr. Schlafly said. That would break Trump's pro-life pledge if he were to pick him. Kerry Severno, chief counsel and policy director at the Conservative Judicial Crisis Network, says the attacks on both judges, uh, Pryor and Garouche, are misplaced. Pryor does have a very, very solid record on having a principled approach to the Constitution. He's a stellar lawyer, so I think he would be an excellent choice. As for Garouche, she said those attacking his record are looking for the wrong characteristics in a justice. It's important for the serious pro-life groups to make clear that they're not looking at people who are supposedly supposed to be basically activists bypassing the law on any issue. Judge Garouche uh, declined to comment. Judge Pryor did not comment either. American Family Association public policy analyst Abraham Hamilton III said Mr. Trump and congressional Republicans dare not err in filling this vacancy, saying the pick must live up to the legacy of Justice Scalia, one of the most forceful conservative voices on the court for decades. He said Judge Pryor had a distinguished record, but was not sure he lives up to Justice Scalia's vision of an original constructionist in some areas of constitutional law, including religious liberty. The country would best be served by filling Justice Scalia's vacancy with a Scalia-like nominee, Mr. Hamilton said. Mr. Shafley said he worried about who had Mr. Trump's ear in the selection process. He pointed in particular to the Federalist Society, a group of conservative and libertarian law professors, students, and scholars. The problem, he believes, is Trump's advisors. Mr. Trump said the Federalist Society... The Heritage Foundation and other conservative activists helped him shape his initial list of potential nominees, which he released in an unconventional move in the middle of the presidential campaign. The list won widespread praise from conservatives and helped him consolidate support among the Republican base after a contentious primary. So, there you have it. Will it be Garouche? Will it be Pryor? 
Neither one of these gentlemen is perfect. Uh, each is liked and disliked by conservative groups for different reasons, but Garouche's uh, pro-life credentials do leave a good bit uh, to be desired. So if you're looking for the more traditional conservative values, then you're going to want prior. If you're looking for perhaps a more uh, a constitutionalist who doesn't necessarily... Uh, how do I say this? Who doesn't, who is not going to be looking at overturning previous laws per se, then you would be looking at Garouche. I would like to see uh, Don Willett get thrown into this scenario. He's on the Texas Supreme Court. Also, probably top of my list would be Mike Lee, Senator Mike Lee from Utah. I think he would be a phenomenal Supreme Court justice. And of course, also Senator Ted Cruz. I'm I don't believe that either one of those two will be will be selected, but they would be my top choices to sit on the Supreme Court, either Mike Lee or Ted Cruz. After that, I'd look at Pryor and then Don Willett. So, we'll uh we'll see where that goes and what direction. I I'm not a huge fan of Garouche just because I believe that the pro-life cause is the cause of America. You know, we're, we're built on this foundation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but without life there can be no liberty and no pursuit of happiness. And so Garouche's lack of, of pro-life credentials do concern me that that is not the lens with which he views the world. But we'll see. We don't know who the president is going to nominate, so you should be keeping that in prayer. My guess is they've already made their decision, but... Don't know for sure. Hopefully we'll get an announcement on that next week. But definitely, definitely this week be praying for wisdom. Be praying, I would say, for, uh, for, um, I want to call him governor. He's not the governor anymore. Vice President Mike Pence, that he would be heard in these meetings and that he would have wisdom and that he could could provide some real guidance in that situation. And uh, hopefully with his help we can get a a good, solid constitutionalist who is also a conservative on the Supreme Court to fill the vacancy that Justice Scalia has left. All right, we got to take another break. We'll be back in just a few minutes to wrap things up. This is Chris Tomlin with Jesus Don't Go Away. And it is time. It is that sad time when we are going to have to say goodbye in just moments. But you can go on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can listen to past episodes of the show. If you missed yesterday's show, you should go and listen to that. We had Dr. Harry Pearson on from Focus on the Family, and we had just a really fascinating conversation about how our brains are wired. And when God says, think on what is good and just and pure and right, there's a reason that he says that, and it has to do with the way your brain is set up fascinating stuff so go check it out itunes or soundcloud just google the frittle show it'll take you right to it if you're on itunes you can subscribe and they'll actually come to your phone so you don't even have to do any extra work how cool is that i know i know you're welcome but before we get to our last story, let me remind you about Mario G and any State Farm Insurance. They're one of our sponsors here at KVXL. They offer auto, home, life insurance, all kinds of insurance. Uh, if you have anything that can or should be insured, most likely they insure it. And if you mention KVXL when you give them a call for a no obligation insurance quote, Mario G and any State Farm is going to donate ten dollars to Experience Liberty Radio. You can reach them at seven zero two nine eight two thirty three hundred, and we'd like to thank them for their faithful support of our weekly programming. All right, last program of the day. I have saved the most important political piece 
of the day for you for the end. Hang on one second. Uh, And it is this from the Daily Mail. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer waged a one-sided five-year Twitter feud against Dippin' Dots. Yes, this, this is the headline that you should take with you throughout your day. Years before White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer decided to take on the world's media, he waged a one-sided five-year Twitter feud against Dippin' Dots. It began in 2010 when Spicer, who would go on to become the spokesman for the leader of the free world, took issue with the ice cream manufacturer's slogan, Ice Cream of the Future. Dippin' Dots is not, not in all caps, the ice cream of the future. He tweeted in April 2010 while working for PR firm Endeavor Global Strategies. More than a year later, and now working as communications director for the Republican National Committee, uh, well, and then, Spicer's fury over the ice cream slogan clearly had not abated. I think I have said this before, but Dippin' Dots is not the ice cream of the future. (laughs) He tweeted again in September of 2011. Two months later, Spicer shared a Wall Street Journal story titled Ice Cream of the Past, Dippin' Dots Files for Bankruptcy. That was the last the Dots heard from Spicer for several years until the feud reappeared its ugly head. Uh, re-air, re, yeah, you know the word. Its ugly head again in September of 2015. Possibly motivated by a lack of vanilla Dippin' Dots at a Washington Nationals game, Spicer, then the RNC's chief strategist, took to Twitter again to blast the firm. If Dippin' Dots was truly the ice cream of the future, they would not have run out of vanilla, he posted, tagging the Washington Nationals baseball team. Dippin' Dots has responded to the feud in an open letter addressed to Sean, which offers to treat the press secretary and the White House press corps to an ice cream social in an attempt to rebuild bridges. We understand that ice cream is a serious matter, wrote Scott Fisher, CEO of Dippin' Dots, and running out of your favorite flavor can feel like a national emergency. We've seen your tweets, and we would like to be friends rather than foes. We can even afford to treat the White House and press corps to an ice cream social. What do you say? We'll make sure there's plenty of all your favorite flavors. Spicer has not publicly responded to the invitation. Mm. If I was uh, Sean Spicer, I would respond. If I was in the White House press corps, that would be the first question I'd be asking him when he comes out. When are we having Dippin' Dots? Because ice cream is serious. And, you know... it, it it amazes me. The media dredges up stories like this and tries to make them into this huge issue of, oh my goodness, look what he has done. And this is our press secretary. Now, if you understand Twitter at all, you know that if an organization actually uses their social media, the best way to communicate with that organization is through social media. I cannot tell you how much free stuff I've gotten by tweeting companies that use social media. If a company is good on social media, their social media team will assist you because they don't want their brand damaged on social media. It's it's a huge way to make your voice heard. If an airline loses your luggage, the place to complain, if they use social media, is social media. You don't have to wait on the phone. You don't have to try and explain yourself in English. I'm just saying, try social media. If Papa John's Papa John's has gotten my order wrong a couple times. I love Papa John's. I go to Papa John's all the time. And that's really not an exaggeration. There's one right by my house, and that's probably not a good thing. But I love it. And they have great rewards programs. Anyway, 
There's been a couple incidents where they get my order wrong. Within minutes, every time, if I tweet and say, oh, I love you, Papa John's, but you put pepperoni on my cheese pizza. They're like, boom, on it, sent you a code, here's a free pizza. Ding, 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 ding. Just saying. I don't have a problem with someone tweeting Dippin' Dots saying, hey, if you're the ice cream of the future, you want to run out of vanilla? He's right. And what's more, I didn't see any ice cream in Star Wars or any of these futuristic movies. Did anyone else not notice that ice cream is glaringly absent from all futuristic movies? Why is that? Why is that? Hmm. Something to think about as you go about your day. Which I hope is fantastic. And I hope you'll join us for church tonight. 7 p.m. Programs for kids, nursery, everything. Stuff for adults. Be here. 6501 Westlake Mead Boulevard. Or if you're not in Las Vegas, you can stream our services online at experienceliberty.com. We're going to wrap up today with one of my most favoritist, and yes, I can say that word because it's my show, even though it may not be a word in your English vocabulary, but it's in the Frittle Show lingo. <sighs> Star Wars does not... Okay, you may not think that Star Wars is a future movie. People are texting me, and they think they're clever. But what they don't know is what they don't know. And that is that Star Wars could be futuristic. Or it could be a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We don't know. When was it actually written? What time period did Lucas think we were in when it was a long time ago? Could be in the future it was a long time ago, which could still be in our future. We don't really know. Think of other futuristic movies. You don't have to focus in on Star Wars just because I said Star Wars. Just think of movies that focus on the future. What are those ones where the world's coming to an end? Pick any of them. There's no ice cream. I'm telling you it's a problem. Anyway, I have to go. This is the Ball Brothers with a It's About the Cross. See you tonight. Or you can tune in tomorrow, same time, same place, KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio in Las Vegas.